This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, we began a new series a couple of weeks ago on 1 Timothy, and we're walking through Paul's letter to Timothy verse by verse, and this series is called Fight the Good Fight. That is a phrase that we see multiple times in this letter. In fact, we'll see it next week in verse 18 of chapter 1, but today we're going to look at verses 12 through 17 in 1 Timothy 1, and it's about God's overflowing grace. I want you to turn there in your copy of God's word. This is where Paul just stops and shares his personal testimony of how the grace of God overflowed in his life. And it is, it's a beautiful, intensely personal part of this letter as the apostle Paul just kind of opens up and just shares what God has done in his life. It's a testimony of overflowing grace. First Timothy chapter one, and we're gonna look this morning at verses 12 through 17. Follow along with me in your copy of, of God's word. Paul says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a text. Let's pray together. So Lord, we pray that as we dig into this incredible passage today, that you would, you would speak to us. As the Apostle Paul shares his story of your amazing grace in his life, Lord, we, we pray that by the power of the Spirit, your, your grace would be shed abroad in our hearts. Speak to us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen. Tony Evans tells a funny story about a guy who went to a photographer uh, to get a picture taken of himself, and it was a, a headshot, and, uh, and the results came back, and he was irate. He was livid with this photographer and very upset at this picture. He stormed back to the photographer, barged into his office, and he held up the picture of himself, and he said, how could you do this? This does not do me justice. 
And the photographer looked at him sadly and he said, sir, with a face like yours, you need mercy, not justice. <laughs> now, was there, is there ever a more fitting description for our spiritual state? Because of our sin and our guilt, the last thing that we need from God is justice. We get justice, we're doomed. We need a whole lot of mercy, a whole lot of grace. And that's what this text is all about. It's, it's God's overflowing grace. So, so what do we see here in this text? If you want to take notes, the outline's on the back of your, your bulletin. But the first thing that we see here is thanksgiving for grace. Look at verse 12. Paul's giving thanks. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord. And the tense here means he's, that, that thanksgiving is Paul's continual practice. Paul lived in thanksgiving. Don't you want to live that way? You know, live with an attitude of gratitude. That was Paul. And the reason for that is because he never ceased to be blown away by the gospel. That God would have mercy on someone like him. John Newton was born in 1725 in London. And Newton, Newton's mother was a devout Christian. His father was a sea captain. And as a young man, Newton left home to embark on a life at sea, but he also left something else. He left the Christian faith that he had been raised in by his mom. And he went to sea and he found that he could, he could, he could make relatively big and easy money through the slave trade by transporting kidnapped human beings across the, the Atlantic. On March the 10th, 1748, John Newton at sea that he had ever seen. And as the hold of the ship was filling with water, he went to, to, to man the, the pumps and he, he cried out, if God does not have mercy on us, we are doomed. And at that moment, he was struck by the words that had come out of his own mouth about the need for God's mercy. Mercy. And he thought to himself, could there be any mercy for a man like me? Well, God saved John Newton's life and his soul that day. And he later became a, a pastor in London. This summer, I was able to visit the, the church where he pastored in London. And one day after the service, a young member of parliament, William Wilberforce, came to talk to him. And for the next 20 years, Newton became Wilberforce's pastor and spiritual mentor and was by his side as William Wilberforce waged a lonely campaign in parliament for the abolishment of the slave trade in the British Empire. You know, we, we saw last, last week in verse 10, Paul talked about slave traders. John Newton actually was one before he came to Christ. And uh, he, he, he partnered with William Wilberforce 
and seeking to abolish the evil of the slave trade. I mean, people laughed at them. Wilberforce would put forth legislation, it would just immediately get shot down. I mean, this went on for decades. You know, sometimes we, we might grow discouraged in the pro-life community because we feel like with abortion, you know, it, it's a, a step forward and then a couple of steps back and, you know, it can, it can just be very discouraging. We can think, well, will we ever see the end of this? Take heart. Take heart. They never thought they would see the end of the slave trade in the British Empire. But Wilberforce, with Newton's encouragement, just kept at it. John Newton himself wrote a pamphlet called Thoughts on the African Slave Trade in which he gave graphic, first-hand testimony of what he had witnessed and his own involvement in it, in that evil. It was sent to every member of parliament. Nine months before Newton died, the slave trade was abolished in the British Empire. Newton just never got over the grace that God had shown him. And when you think about his story, think about the words that he wrote in that great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, this is Paul. This is Paul here. He could not get over that God would be merciful and save someone like him. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Now part of what Paul is doing here is encouraging Timothy who is in this incredibly difficult situation in Ephesus. And Paul is encouraging him and his son in the faith and he's saying, hey listen, just as our Lord has strengthened me, he will strengthen you. Just as he has appointed me to the ministry, Timothy, he has appointed you. He's encouraging him. Martin Lloyd-Jones was maybe the greatest preacher of the 20th century. Before he went into the ministry, uh, Lloyd-Jones was a doctor, a medical doctor, and not just any doctor, he was brilliant. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the chief assistant to the physician that was the personal physician to the royal family. And Lloyd-Jones himself would have stepped into that position. He would have been the personal doctor for the royal family, the, the most honored medical position in Great Britain. But the Spirit of God was stirring in his heart about the ministry, about preaching the gospel. And so he, he left medicine to, uh, to become a pastor. And when he did that, listen, his unsaved colleagues in the medical world did not applaud him for doing it. They said, you're crazy. You're nuts. What are you even thinking? And, 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 and through the years, even a lot of Christians would, would say things to him like, oh, look at what you gave up. Look at what you lost. You know what Lloyd-Jones would tell them? He said, I lost nothing. I gained everything because he considered the highest calling in life would be to preach the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Listen, just as God has appointed me, he has appointed you. He has called you, Timothy. Take heart. Now, by the way, when Paul says here in verse 12, when he says that 
um, because he considered me faithful. He is not saying that there was any virtue on his part. <laughs> it's the opposite of that. The sense here is it, of it is that Paul is saying, because he considered me faithful, me of all people. <laughs> you know why? Because God saw Paul on the Damascus Road, not for who he was, but for who he could be. And that's the way that we have to view people a lot of times. You know, we, we encourage you to pray for your one, pray for, pray for lost people in your lives. And sometimes they just might seem so hard and so far from God. But listen, we need to view people not just as who they are right now, but who they could be. Who they could be by the grace and, and power of God. Let's look at verse 13. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. Now, Paul uses a, a triad of words here to describe his former life, and they go from bad to worse. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. I spoke against Christ and his church. And then I was a persecutor. I put my words into action. I had Christians beaten and imprisoned and killed. And then he says, I was an arrogant man, insolent, uh, prideful, self-righteous, repugnant in every way. Now, since Paul is kind of giving his testimony here, we, we, we probably need to look back at what happened in his life. Let's, let's turn to the book of Acts and uh, let's look at Acts chapter 7. At the, the, end, the end of chapter 7, this is the account of the, the martyrdom of Stephen, one of the early Christians who was stoned to death. And let's look at, at what Luke tells us here. Let's pick it up in Acts 7 and verse 58. It's speaking about the martyrdom of, of Stephen. And it says, beginning in verse 58, that they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later become Paul. He was heading up the entire thing. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Look at, look at Acts 8.3. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Now turn to Acts 9, Acts 9, and look at the beginning of that chapter. Luke tells us, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Damascus. 
Jerusalem. He wanted to go arrest more Christians, but something happened on the road to Damascus. Saul was arrested by grace. Pick it up in verse three. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. They took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Now, let me ask you something. Does, does Paul contribute anything here to his own salvation? Nothing. It is sheer grace. He's on his way to do more harm. When he's overwhelmed by grace, Jesus comes to him. Now let's look back at his testimony here um, at verse 13, 1 Timothy 1.13. What does he say here? Four words in the middle of this verse. But I received mercy. In Greek, it is passive. In other words, he's saying here, it was all of grace. I had nothing to do with this. All of God's mercy, but I received mercy. It happened to me. It happened to me. Now, Jonathan Edwards has it right when he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Look at verse 14. He says, he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a verse. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. It's like grace like a river, just kind of overflowing the bounds, except for this overflowing river, instead of bringing destruction, it brings life. 
I love the picture in Ezekiel 47 that the prophet gives of this, of this stream coming out from the, the altar of God and the, and the temple, and it starts as a trickle, and it becomes this, this river, Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east, the water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Next, he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faced east. There, the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went out east with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my ankles. Then he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my knees. He measured off another third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my waist. Again, he measured off a third of a mile and it was a river that I could not cross on foot for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. This is what Paul had encountered an overflowing river of grace. He was like, I deserve nothing but a river of lava coming out from the pit of hell to consume me. And instead, what I got was a river of overflowing grace coming out to bring me life. Look at what this river brings here in verse 14. He says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, faith and love are gifts of God's grace. It happens when God gives us a new heart. Again, let's look to Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Paul never got over it. Thanksgiving for grace. Second, his life was a demonstration of grace. Let's look at verse 15. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. So this phrase, uh, that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. We're gonna see three more times in First and Second Timothy. And what it means is that what is about to be said, you know, let your ears perk up. You know, Jesus did this when he said, you know, he would say things, he would say, truly, truly, I say to you, or in the old King James Version, verily, verily, I say unto you. In other words, listen up, listen up. When Paul says this, here's a, a, a saying that's deserving of a full, except, listen up, here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now in this one little phrase, two core doctrines of the gospel are taught. First of all, the incarnation. Christ Jesus came into the world, God became man. Incarnation, secondly, redemption. Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners. It's about redemption. You know, back during his days as a Pharisee, Paul, Paul considered the sinners to be those people. When, we, when you start thinking like that, check yourself. 
Check yourself. Those people, those bad people. Paul used to think of Gentiles and, you know, and uh, wayward, uh, non-law-abiding Jews as, 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 as sinners. But when Christ came to him, he had to revise his definition, right? Sinners became every human being. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, you know, Paul says both Jews and Greeks are what? All under sin. And then in Romans 3, 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if, if every person is a sinner, then that means every person needs a savior. Here's the good news of the gospel. That's why Jesus came. John 3 and verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And Paul says, I'm the worst. I'm the foremost. Hey, you remember last week we were looking at verses 9 and 10. Paul gives this list of sins. He's saying here, I'm at the top of the list. I'm the foremost. The worst of them all. But, 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 but Paul believed that God had chosen to save him for this very reason. As a demonstration, as an example Look what he says in verse 16. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if God can save somebody like me, he can save anybody. Now, again, we need to be encouraged by this because you may have people in your life that you love and that you care about that are unsaved and their heart seems so hard, you know, but you need, to you need to ask the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? You may be facing things in your life this morning that you can't see your way out of. It seems intractable. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing's too hard for him, friend. You look to him. Now, before we leave Paul's testimony, I want you to see something. And it's something I, I did not see myself until preparing for this series. Because when I would read 1 Timothy in the past, I tended to view, unconsciously, but I tended to view verses 12 through 17 as sort of a digression you know, Paul just kind of stops, shares his story, but I, I always kind of thought of it as sort of a, a, a digression in the flow of the letter. You know, after kind of marinating in this book in preparation for the series, I'm utterly convinced that is not the case. That is not the case. Verses 12 through 17 are part of the argument that Paul is making in this letter against the false teachers in Ephesus because what were they doing? They were, they were downplaying the work of Christ. The false teachers in Ephesus were 
downplaying the, the grace of God. They were telling people, you know, you're saved through the law and through these, uh, th- these mythological things, these, these, these codes that are, that are immersed in the genealogies of the Old Testament and through knowledge of all of that stuff. They, they, were, they, were, they were downgrading the gospel. What's Paul doing in this text through his testimony? He is lifting up Christ. He is lifting up the grace of God. And he's telling this church, get back to the gospel. It's the only thing that saves. And the gospel is all about Jesus. And then Paul just is caught up in praise to God, right? That's the third thing that we see here. Adoration of the grace of God. Verse 17. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This sounds like a song. Maybe it was, uh, you know, it could have been an early Christian praise song. It could have been something that, a blessing that they memorized, or this may just be just Paul's spontaneous uh, words of praise. Whatever it is, it's, it's beautiful. These three words here, eternal, immortal, invisible, they all begin with the letter alpha in Greek. It's kind of flow off the tongue. First of all, he says that the king is eternal, that he is the king of ages. This age and the age to come, every age. Think about this in the Roman province of Asia where it's written, where where Caesar is Lord, right? Caesar is king. Paul says, God's the real king. He's the real king. He's, he's, He's the king of ages, eternal of every age. He is immortal. Unlike us, he is not subject to death. In, in Romans 1, you know, when, when Paul talks about the folly of idolatry, what, what, does he, what does he say here in Romans 1 and verses 22 and 23? He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Paul's like, what are you doing? You could know the immortal God and yet you're worshiping stuff. Stuff that was created by human beings. God is immortal. And then he is invisible. Now, turn to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy because there's another, another part at the end of the letter where Paul just kind of breaks into adoration and praise. And he says something um, very similar here. Let's pick it up um, here at the at middle part of verse 15, of 1 Timothy 6. He says of God, he is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. How incredible that this God, this transcendent God who lives in unapproachable light has come to us and revealed himself to us and stooped to save us. 
John says in John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side. He has revealed him. And then, looking, looking back at verse 17, he says that, this, that God is the only God. Think about this. He's writing to a church in, in Ephesus where they can literally probably meet in a house church. They could walk out of the house where this letter was being read and look up on the hill and there is the temple of Artemis. The temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and kind of like the world center of polytheism, of the worship of false gods. They can look out and see it. And Paul says, no, there's only one. <laughs> the one and only. The only God. You know, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. I mean, so be it. Now he's inviting congregational response from a congregation that, that has been torn apart by false teachers and in danger of losing the gospel. What he's doing in the story here is he's pulling them back into the gospel and he's inviting them to join in a congregational response. Amen, so be it. Sometimes in church you hear something and you feel like saying amen, but you hold back. Just say amen. <laughs> just say amen, right? When, you, when the truth of God comes and your heart wants to say it, just say it, right? That's what Paul's doing. He's inviting a congregational response to what he has just said about God. Now, it's interesting here because everything in verse 17 is emphasizing God's otherness that God is not like us. He is completely other. And yet, this God who is completely other has come to us to save us. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards earlier in the message. Jonathan Edwards was saved through 1 Timothy 1.17. <laughs> through this verse. One day, Edwards read this verse as a, a teenager, and the Spirit of God, it was like a heat-seeking missile right through his heart. And Edwards said this about that day. He says, as I, as I read the words, there came into my soul a sense of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to, to God in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him. Well, listen, we can be swallowed up in this God because he has swallowed death for us. Look at Isaiah 25 and verses seven and eight. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death, once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Isaiah is looking forward to the day when God was going to swallow up death. How was he gonna do that? It's because Jesus took it on himself. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, looks back on Isaiah 25 and looks back to the work of Christ in his death for our sins and his resurrection. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we thank you for this gospel and for your amazing, overflowing grace that comes to us as a gift, completely undeserved. Lord, what we deserve, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from you. That's what we would get if we got pure justice. But Lord, we we thank you that you, you give sinners mercy, that you demonstrate your love and your mercy through your son, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we just continue to to reflect in the presence of God right now, listen, I would ask you, do you know Christ as your savior and Lord and king? Maybe you're watching a stream. Maybe you'll be watching this video at some point in the future. God is putting you in the hearing of this message, not by accident, my friend. Turn to Jesus and trust him right now. Turn from sin and self and trying to do life apart from him, your own way. Turn to Christ and receive him as your savior and Lord and king and rest in his finished work on your behalf. He died for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead that we can have eternal life and abundant life. Turn to Jesus and trust him now. Repent and believe Christians, what an incredible word of encouragement this is for us and also for us as we, as we bear witness to, to people because we can so easily give up on people. What an encouragement not to do that, that there's no sin, that the grace of God is not deeper still. There's, there's no problem too great for him. There's nothing too hard for him. You be encouraged today. Be filled with hope today. So Father, we pray that you would do that, that Lord, your your spirit would flow as a river of love and grace and encouragement uh, to your people. Lord, encourage us as we bear witness, Lord, that that you you can change lives. Um, And Lord, you changed us. You saved us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we pray that the faith and love that come from that grace would flow through our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. 
Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 